This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Freerks, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Let's settle in now for this episode with the host of the Best Song Podcast, Jeff Cummings. If the five Academy Award-nominated songs from 1984 proved anything, it's that the movie business and the music business were no longer two mutually exclusive worlds. And that continued to be true in 1985, where four of the five nominated songs were created by songwriters whose feet were firmly planted in pop music while the fifth came from an adaptation of one of the most popular Broadway shows in history. Let's start with that Broadway adaptation. It was a chorus line, which won almost every award available for its creator Michael Bennett and its songwriters Marvin Hamlish and Edward Kleeman in 1975. That includes the Pulitzer Prize for Drama and the Tony for Best Musical. The Tony Award for Best Score went not to Hamlish and Kleeman, but to John Kander and Fred Ebb for their work on Chicago. Film adaptations of Broadway musicals had been all the rage in the 1950s and 1960s, but the cost of producing a big musical movie was too much for the studios to bear, especially since the public didn't go to see them. A chorus line had been discussed as a film as the stage show was ready to debut on Broadway, but kept stalling over creative ideas about the plot's execution. Even when Oscar-winning director Richard Attenborough agreed to do the film, and most of the cast was hired, the question of which songs to include in the movie continued to create conflict. As several of the stage show monologues were deleted, that meant some of the songs attached to them had to go. And some new dialogue was created, requiring Hamlish and Kleban to reunite for some new songs. That new song is Surprise, Surprise, a song about having sex for the first time and the feeling it creates. It flows from dialogue other characters were having about sexual experiences, including a revision of one dancer's discovery that he was gay. Not a song you would have heard in 1955, would you? But there it was. Surprise, surprise, was an Oscar-nominated song. It feels a little disconnected from the rest of the song score. It relies heavily on synthesizers and drum kits, while the other songs lean more on orchestral flavors. And that's not surprising since those songs come from the stage show that used mostly orchestral instruments. But having it flow almost seamlessly from a lengthy discussion about sex makes it less jarring. After Richie sings about his first and second sexual experiences with a girl, the cast begin to dance before joining him in the song's finale. Outside the big opening audition sequence and the big finale, this is the only time we see the entire cast dancing together so it helps to make the song stand out. Talk about love, man. My first time was with this girl, Paulette. Forget about it. We did it in a graveyard. First time we made love, it was a great deal. I was too scared to feel nervous from trying. Next time we made love, still we were not a hit. Oh, I thought of this is it. The Emperor Wong's lying. Then we did it again. And I forgot to be scared, I guess. Cause when we did it again, I closed my eyes. Surprise. Imagine 
This is Marvin Hamlish's first Oscar nomination since writing music for the 1982 movie Sophie's Choice. And believe it or not, his first song nomination since Through the Eyes of Love from 1979. As for his lyricist Edward Kleban, this was his first experience writing a song for film. His career began in theater, and after the big success of a chorus line on Broadway, he never seemed hard-pressed to work on another winning show. He fell into a depression after a course line opened, according to a biography of him, and struggled greatly with finding creativity in the midst of that depression. He did teach songwriting in New York City for years while trying to stage a musical called Gallery in 1981, a show that never saw the light of day. Quincy Jones and Lionel Richie were two songwriters who were having amazing success in 1985. Away from the movies, the two created the song We Are the World with Michael Jackson, which was created to help raise money to end hunger in Africa. Jackson and Ritchie are the credited songwriters of We Are the World, which was written quickly and recorded in late January 1985. The song was released on March 7, 1985, and has become one of the biggest selling singles of all time. The music video for the song shows all the amazing talent who agreed to perform the song, 
either as solos or in a group chorus. Quincy Jones produced the song and can be seen in the video conducting the chorus, the first time he's appeared in a music video. While We Are the World was achieving its goal of raising money and awareness of the famine epidemic in Africa, Quincy Jones was producing the film adaptation of the Pulitzer Prize-winning book The Color Purple, enlisting Steven Spielberg as director. Quincy Jones's contract also stipulated that he write the score to the movie, making this the first Spielberg movie to not contain a John Williams score. And to no one's surprise, Jones suggested there be some original songs in the movie, and asked his longtime collaborator Rod Temperton to help out. Temperton was born and raised in England, and had a successful career with the funk band Heatwave. The group had a hit with the Groove Line in the mid-1970s, but that was just the beginning. Temperton was recruited by Quincy Jones in 1978 to write songs for Michael Jackson, and Temperton created Off the Wall and Rock With You for Jackson's Off the Wall album in 1979. And then there's Thriller, the album, where Temperton gave us the title song. As we've discovered throughout this podcast, many of the songwriters of history's most popular songs were rarely discussed or praised alongside the artists who performed the hit songs. And I bet you didn't know Rod Temperton wrote Thriller. Many articles written about Temperton suggested that he didn't want to be in the spotlight alongside the men and women who sang his songs, but he certainly deserved it. So when Quincy Jones started work on the music for The Color Purple, specifically the songs, Rod Temperton was right by his side. Temperton and Jones wrote the gospel song, God is Trying to Tell You Something, a rousing number that plays in the big reunion scene at the end between Suge Avery and her minister father. Though that song becomes a key moment in the story of Suge Avery and her relationship with her father, it's one of Suge Avery's other songs that got the Oscar nomination. This song, called Miss Seeley's Blues, seals the bond between Suge and Whoopi Goldberg's character Seeley, a bond that will eventually give Seeley the courage to take her own path of independence. The song is the beginning of Seeley's belief that she can be free of Danny Glover's character, a man she calls Mr., especially through the lyrics that say, No Twister's Gonna Steal Your Stuff Away. The song is performed in a juke joint, a backwoods, run-down bar where people come to drink moonshine and hear blues music. This song I'm about to sing is called Miss Seeley's Blues. Because <laughs> she scratched it out my head when I was ailing. Away, my sister. 
We sure ain't got a whole lot of time. So Though it's actress Margaret Avery that is performing the song on screen, that's not her voice. It's Tata Vega's voice performing this song and all the others that Sugar Avery sings, including God is Trying to Tell You Something. Vega had a long career in the music business, releasing four solo albums and also singing backup for artists like Michael Jackson, Stevie Wonder, Patti LaBelle, and Madonna. Her connections in the business, particularly in her work with Motown, likely drew the attention of Quincy Jones, who hired her to be the singing voice of Suge Avery on the four songs the character sings in The Color Purple. While The Color Purple was in pre-production, Quincy Jones asked his longtime friend Lionel Richie to help Rod Temperton with the lyrics for Miss Seeley's Blues. Given that Richie was also an Oscar nominee for writing Endless Love four years earlier, his experience writing this song and offering other advice for the music for The Color Purple was likely very valuable. Lionel Richie had another movie assignment in 1985 that required him to write a title song for Taylor Hackford's movie, White Nights. The movie starred Gregory Hines and Mikhail Baryshnikov as dancers in the Soviet Union, where Baryshnikov's plane is landed and caused him to return to his former homeland after he defected. Hines played Raymond, an American who has moved to the USSR after being disillusioned by race relations in the United States during his time serving in the Vietnam War. Through the course of the movie, Hines and Baryshnikov become friends as they plan to get out of Russia. That friendship was solidified in the final shot of the movie, with the two stars looking at each other with gratitude. It was further solidified by Lionel Richie's song, which is called Say You, Say Me. Taylor Hackford really wanted Richie to use the words White Knights in his song, but Richie just couldn't make it work. After a few failed attempts, Richie submitted Say You, Say Me, which Hackford loved. That extended to the music branch of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, which gave Lionel Richie two nominations that year. The song's theme is about the importance of friendship when traveling down life's lonesome highway, and is highlighted by an upbeat bridge section where Richie turns to the subject of dancing for just a bit before ending with the affirmation that you are a shining star. The title of the song infers that the singer's friend will always say you and me together as a sign of their friendship, instead of the selfish lives that the lead characters seem to lead at the beginning of the movie. I think both characters go back to the United States and become very popular dance partners. Truly, I 
Lionel Richie recorded this song in his living room, with nine others playing various guitar, keyboard, and percussion instruments. Richie had been very busy with his solo career in the years since Endless Love became the most popular duet of all time. He released the album Can't Slow Down in 1983, which had the hit songs Hello, Can't Slow Down, Penny Lover, and Stuck on You. Say You, Say Me spent four weeks at number one on the Billboard Hot 100 chart in December 1985, just in time for members of the Academy's music branch to start thinking about the songs they wanted to nominate. Anyone who bought a copy of the White Knight soundtrack would have been likely disappointed that Say You, Say Me wasn't on it. Motown Records was Lionel Richie's home record label, and Motown owner Barry Gordy was not about to let a potential hit song by one of his top artists appear on another label's album. Say You, Say Me was released as a single in 1985. Then a year later, the song was available on Richie's next album, Dancing on the Ceiling, which wasn't as popular as Can't Slow Down, but did have the title track to keep it popular. The White Knight soundtrack did include the film's other original song called Separate Lives. And with its nomination, it gave us three straight years of having at least one film get two song nominations. Separate Lives is billed in the movie's opening credits as the love theme for the movie, an odd way to describe a song about two people who were once in love, but are not together. Taylor Hackford wanted Phil Collins to be involved with writing this song, hoping that Collins would create another stellar song similar to the hit Against All Odds that he wrote for Hatford's film the previous year. But at the time, Collins was on a world tour for his mega-popular album No Jacket Required, and couldn't find the time to write a love song. But he did agree to record a song that someone else wrote. Enter Stephen Bishop, whose history with the Oscars included singing the nominated song It Might Be You in 1982. He had a big hit with On and On in 1977, a song that spent seven months on the Billboard Hot 100, but couldn't break into the top ten. The album that featured On and On, called Careless, sold a million copies, and helped Stephen Bishop gain some footing in the music business at 26 years old. In 1978, Bishop began writing songs for the movies, with the theme song Dream Girl from National Lampoon's Animal House. That was followed by forgettable songs for movies as varied as The China Syndrome, Roadie, and Summer Lovers. In that time, he also worked with Phil Collins as a backup singer for Collins' 1978 debut solo album, face value. Once Bishop wrote Separate Lives for White Knights, Taylor Hackford sent it to Phil Collins, who I'm sure was more than happy to perform a song by his old friend Stephen Bishop. Since the plan was to make it a duet, Collins was matched with American singer Marilyn Martin. Marilyn Martin was mostly a singer for hire, meaning she would show up at a studio recording session and perform as a backup singer for whatever artist was recording there that day. Most of the time, she found herself singing with Stevie Nicks. 
1985, she was pushed into considering a solo career at Atlantic Records and began recording her debut album that was released in January 1986. Because she was essentially at the beginning of her solo singing career, she was billed as introducing Marilyn Martin in the opening credits of White Nights. Bishop has said that the song assignment came at the perfect time. He had just ended a relationship with actress Karen Allen, best known for playing Harrison Ford's love interest in Raiders of the Lost Ark, and the song speaks of the heartache he felt in the time after the breakup. Bishop said, quote, I write much better when I'm heartbroken or sad or melancholy, and Separate Lives would turn out to be one of his best compositions. The song applies to Barishnikov's character and the character played by Helen Mirren. They had been lovers when Barishnikov was a star ballet dancer in the Soviet Union, and when we hear the song, some of it plays underneath the conversation between Gregory Hines and his wife, played by Isabella Rossellini. Later, Barishnikov is staring out the window, seemingly reminiscing on his past life as the song continues. The song is broken up into two parts in the film, but we'll hear it here unedited. You call me from the room in your hotel All full of romance for someone that you met And telling me how sorry you were Leaving so soon And that you miss me sometimes When you're alone in your room Do I feel lonely too?
When Separate Lives was released in September 1985, it took nine weeks to get to number one on the Billboard Hot 100, giving White Knights two number one songs and giving Stephen Bishop his first and only top ten song on the Billboard Hot 100. As for Phil Collins, singing number one songs was nothing new. Separate Lies was his fourth in 18 months, and his third of 1985 after two from his No Jacket Required album made the top. For Marilyn Martin, obviously it was her first time on the Billboard charts, and it will be her last, even though she continued to record songs until she leaves the music business in the late 1990s. This gave Taylor Hackford an incredible three straight films with Oscar-nominated songs, an incredible track record that stops with White Knights. He produced the 1987 film La Bamba, which resurrected the title song that was written by Richie Valens in 1958, covered by the band Los Lobos in 1987, and turned into a new hit. Hackford won't direct another movie with music until 2006's Ray, which is the story of singer Ray Charles. One of the great many things that came from White Knights for Taylor Hackford was meeting the woman who would become his wife, the British actress Helen Mirren. It also provided the English-language film debut of Isabella Rossellini, the daughter of Oscar-winning actress Ingrid Bergman, and film director Roberto Rossellini. On the last episode of the Best Song Podcast, I talked about director Ivan Reitman's desire to have Huey Lewis write a song for the comedy film Ghostbusters in 1984. Huey Lewis refused because he was already contracted to work on what would be the biggest film of 1985, Back to the Future. That movie's director and co-writer, Robert Zemeckis, wanted Huey Lewis to do more than write music for his movie. He wanted the movie's main character, Marty McFly, to be a big fan of Huey Lewis and the News. He wanted Marty to play a Huey Lewis and the News song in the movie, and wanted Lewis himself to do a cameo as a judge in the high school band contest. That required a big time commitment from Huey Lewis, who was rewarded with an Oscar nomination for one of the songs he wrote for Back to the Future, called the power of love. Though they had already established themselves as a major rock and roll band with the release of their album Sports, Huey Lewis and the News never scored a Billboard number one until The Power of Love. The song spent two weeks at number one in August 1985, with the music video featuring the band performing the song at a nightclub helping to sell records and bring people to the theater. It helped make Back to the Future a monster hit, making $210 million. Now, was The Power of Love part of that success? It's hard to say, but arguably the song didn't hurt the film's success. It does fit into the plot of the film, though not right away. The first time we hear the song, Marty has just destroyed an oversized amplifier while playing electric guitar in Doc Brown's home. He realizes he's late for school, and the journey to Hill Valley High School is scored with the heavily edited 60 seconds of The Power of Love. The second time comes after school when Marty is saying goodbye to his girlfriend Jennifer and on his way home. That's when the song's meaning really comes out. After Marty and Jennifer kiss, Huey Lewis sings, That's the Power of Love.
as Marty McFly, Michael J. Fox plays an instrumental version of the song at the Battle of the Bands audition, and it's Huey Lewis himself who stops Marty and says, I'm afraid you're just too darn loud. The song was written by three members of Huey Lewis and the News. Obviously, Huey Lewis was involved, and he asked Chris Hayes and Johnny Cola to co-write it, as they had done for many of the band's previous songs. The three also wrote Back in Time, which plays during the end credits, and has a stronger connection to the plot than The Power of Love. But The Power of Love was the bigger hit because, well, it's a rock and roll love song, and the music branch voters were more swayed by the composition of The Power of Love. Those are five very good nominated songs. But in this era of pop music and movies joined together, there were a lot of popular movie songs that found themselves without Oscar nominations. The song that threw the power of love off the number one spot on the Billboard Hot 100 stayed at number one for two weeks, but couldn't use that stat to gain an Oscar nomination. If John Parr's St. Elmo's Fire had gotten that Oscar nomination, there was a chance that 1985 could have repeated the historical feat of 1984 with all number one songs as Oscar nominees, but it would have needed to replace either Miss Seeley's Blues or Surprise Surprise on the Oscar list. John Parr's recording of St. Elmo's Fire was the title song from the movie that started the rise of the group of young actors who would later be known as the Brat Pack. David Foster was hired to write the score for St. Elmo's Fire, and his assignment included writing the theme song. Foster was already well known as a successful record producer and songwriter, but he always had a lyricist to help him. Some of Foster's well-known song creations before 1985 include After the Love is Gone for Earth, Wind, and Fire, and almost all of the hit songs for the band Chicago in the mid to early 1980s. He had written the song Tears Are Not Enough, which was Canada's answer to We Are the World and Do They Know It's Christmas. Foster heard one of Parr's songs and immediately wanted his sound for the song. Parr had trouble coming up with lyrics after watching an early edit of the movie, and inspiration came from someone who had no connection to the film. Disabled Canadian athlete Rick Hansen was on a tour called the Man in Motion Tour, which was designed to raise awareness about spinal cord injuries. Foster showed Parr a news clip featuring Hansen, and the words Man in Motion set in motion the inspirational lyrics that made John Parr an international sensation in 1985. St. Elmo's Fire was a pretty big hit, and some of the actors would become major stars in a few years. Names like Demi Moore, Emilio Estevez, and Rob Lowe were just names back then, but not for long. Though David Foster and John Parr wrote a smash hit of a song, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences music branch weren't impressed. Perhaps the fact that the song doesn't really have a connection to the movie other than using the title turned them off and kept them from writing the song high on their nomination ballots. We Don't Need Another Hero was another movie song that had no connection to its film other than using one of the words in the title. 
The subtitle to We Don't Need Another Hero was Thunderdome, the standout word in the film's title, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. It was sung by Tina Turner, who played the villain to Mel Gibson's Mad Max. The song comes during the movie's credits and doesn't tie the plot in a bow. Written by Terry Britton and Graham Lyle, it also features a children's chorus, which was an attempt to tie it into the film, which focuses on a bunch of child slaves under the rule of Tina Turner's Auntie Entity. Turner was a hot commodity in entertainment in 1985. She had just won Record of the Year for What Love Got to Do With It in 1984, her first major hit after starting her solo singing career. We Don't Need Another Hero was another hit for Tina Turner, going to number two on the Billboard Hot 100 and number one in several other countries. But because Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome was trashed by critics, Turner didn't act in another movie. It also deprived songwriters Terry Britton and Graham Lyle of being called Oscar nominees, mostly because of their failure to write a title song that really connected to the movie. James Bond was having a lot of trouble getting back into the Oscar song race, with the title songs for his movies since 1981's For Your Eyes Only not grabbing the Academy's attention. The movies were still massively popular, but by the time number 14 came around, Roger Moore felt it would be perfect for his last outing as James Bond. Moore was 57 years old and showing his age in his seventh time out as 007, something critics were not shy to mention. This movie was the first official James Bond film to not be adapted from any of the Ian Fleming novels, instead coming from an original screenplay that modernizes James Bond as he fought Christopher Walken's plans to destroy the computer chip industry and California's Silicon Valley as a whole. Though A View to a Kill doesn't stand out as one of the best Bond movies, the theme song written for it made history as the first Bond song to reach number one on the Billboard Hot 100. Goldfinger couldn't do it. Live and Let Die tried and failed. But it was the British group Duran Duran that wrote and recorded the history-making song. John Barry was able to come back into the Bond fold after many years away as a means to avoid returning to London to face tax evasion charges. This was his first collaboration on a Bond song since Diamonds Are Forever in 1971, and after two decades writing songs and film scores, John Barry finally found himself at the top of the Billboard charts. John Taylor, the bass guitar player for Duran Duran, cornered producer Cubby Broccoli at a party about getting a decent group to sing the next Bond song, and not long after, Duran Duran was hired. Simon LeBon, the band's lead singer, said John Barry was not really one of the songwriters, but rather a helpful arranger to piece together the version of the song that appears in the movie's opening credits.
It's a strong song, and possibly worthy of its history making place at the top of the Billboard charts. But does A View to a Kill mean anything? All the previous Bond songs were either about one of the villains, or a love song to James Bond himself. A View to a Kill, I think, is about making the choice when faced with imminent death, to run or face the threat. Perhaps the confusing nature of the song turned off Academy Music Branch voters, who didn't put it into the final five nominees for 1985. The Rocky series had a lot of success at the Oscars, at least as far as the original song category goes. Two of the three films had Oscar-nominated songs, and Sylvester Stallone wanted to make it three for four with Rocky IV. He asked the rock band Survivor, who had written the nominated song Eye of the Tiger for Rocky III, to write a song for Rocky IV. The result was Burning Heart, which was supposed to highlight the tensions between Rocky Balboa and Russian adversary Ivan Drago, as well as current real-world tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union. The song comes after Rocky has agreed to fight Ivan Drago, and Rocky travels to a small Russian town to train. The driving piano and guitar that pulses through the song is very reminiscent of Eye of the Tiger. The song was written by Jim Peterick and Frankie Sullivan, who also wrote Eye of the Tiger. Unlike Eye of the Tiger, though, Burning Heart couldn't get to the top of the Billboard chart, kept at number two by That's What Friends Are For. It also couldn't get an Oscar nomination, meaning Rocky IV joined Rocky II as nominationless films in the Rocky series up to that point. One has to wonder if it were able to get to number one, would it have secured an Oscar nomination? 
The trade ads would have definitely highlighted that, and it probably wasn't easy to promote a song that only went to number two. And the similarity to Eye of the Tiger was probably not lost on Music Branch voters either. Now, if you were alive in the mid-1980s, you were aware of the filmmaker John Hughes and his teen comedies that started in 1984 with 16 Candles and continued in 1985 with The Breakfast Club. That movie became one of Hughes' most loved films, full of classic lines and, of course, a great soundtrack album. Though the album had a lot of songs that were previously recorded and put on other albums, Oscar winner Keith Forsey teamed up with guitarist Steve Schiff for the film's sole original song, Don't You Forget About Me. The story goes that Forsey and Schiff immediately knew they wanted the British band Simple Minds to sing the song and wrote it with them in mind. After completing the song, Forsey and Schiff handed it over to Simple Minds, who turned it down because they only sang songs they wrote. Forsey kept hounding Simple Minds to record the song, and finally they agreed to do so in early 1985. According to an interview Simple Minds lead singer Jim Kerr gave in 2015, he was allowed to add in the la 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 at the end of the song, but since it wasn't an official contribution to the creation of the song, he nor Simple Minds received song credit. song comes at the end of The Breakfast Club after the five very different high school students find a bond and hopefully don't forget about each other when they go back to school on Monday. It became a number one song, the only one Simple Minds would enjoy. Though he still has some hesitation to call it a great song, Jim Kerr agreed that, quote, this is the song that kicked the door to the big league wide open for us, end quote but the big league of the Academy was not to be, as Don't You Forget About Me was denied an Oscar nomination. In their constant quest to recognize the names behind the songs rather than the songs themselves, the Hollywood Foreign Press Association nominated A View to a Kill as one of the 1985 Golden Globe nominees for original song. With the Golden Globes always kicking off movie award season in January, one might have thought A View to a Kill was a shoe-in for an Oscar nomination the following month, especially if the Golden Globes nominate it. Remember that in 1984, four of the five eventual Oscar nominees were also Golden Globe nominees. But this year, only two of the songs that would earn Oscar nominations were on the Golden Globe list, Say You, Say Me, and The Power of Love. Tina Turner's We Don't Need Another Hero was another Golden Globe nominee, as was a song that was popular but probably stood no chance of finding itself on the Oscar list. Rhythm of the Night, from the movie The Last Dragon. The song was written by aspiring songwriter Diane Warren, who had been writing music since she was 11 years old. Now at 29 years old, she had her breakout hit with Rhythm of the Night, a song that went to number three on the Billboard chart, 
held back by We Are the World and Madonna's Crazy For You. The Madonna song, by the way, was written for the movie Vision Quest, and though the song was popular, the movie was not, and couldn't get any attention from awards voters anywhere. Burning Heart was passed over for the Golden Globe, a curious omission given the star power of Survivor. But there were only five nominees that year, and Survivor had to do their best to move on from it, which they did with several more hit songs that were not written for the movies. The battle for the Oscar began on January 24, 1986, when Lionel Richie won the Golden Globe for Say You, Say Me. The Power of Love got a little bit of a bump at the Grammy Awards in late February, two weeks after the Oscar nominations were announced. Huey Lewis and the News were nominated for Record of the Year, an award they were definitely not going to win over We Are the World. But getting a nomination for Record of the Year when none of its Oscar competitors did boosted the visibility of The Power of Love about six months after it left the Billboard Hot 100 chart. And it didn't hurt that Huey Lewis and the News was asked to perform The Power of Love at the Grammys. Lionel Richie's Say You, Say Me wasn't nominated at the Grammys, but Richie did clean up with a Grammy of his own for writing We Are the World with Michael Jackson. So Lionel Richie got to stand on stage to accept a Grammy for one of the most important popular songs of the year. When the Academy Awards began on March 24, 1986, the consensus was that Lionel Richie or Huey Lewis would walk away from the night with an Oscar in their hands. But Huey Lewis noticed that his seat in the Oscar audience was in the middle of the row, while Lionel Richie was seated on the aisle. That prompted Lewis to tell fellow nominee Marvin Hamlish that the Academy seemed to think Lionel Richie was going to win since they gave him an aisle seat, making it easier for him to get to the stage. But really it was probably because he got two nominations. No matter who was sitting where, all of the nominees had to be happy with the performances of the nominated songs during the ceremony. For the first time in the history of the Oscar show, and we're going back like almost 40 years, all of the nominated songs were sung by the original performers. This was an almost 180 degree turn from last year's show, when Academy President Gregory Peck swore that the show wouldn't turn into the Grammys. Robert Wise, the Oscar-winning director of West Side Story, was Academy President now, and he knew the importance of a star-studded musical lineup at the Oscars. I should probably put an asterisk on this history-making tidbit about the Oscar performances, because Phil Collins wasn't there to sing separate live since he was still on his No Jacket Required tour. Stephen Bishop was already there as the nominated songwriter, so he stepped in to sing with Marilyn Martin. Bishop's performance that night helped raise interest in his own recording of Separate Lives, which he released in late fall 1985. Even Tata Vega was invited to attend the show and sing Miss Seeley's Blues, as was Greg Berge to sing Surprise, Surprise. The producers saved the most anticipated performances for last, with Huey Lewis and Lionel Richie closing out the song performances with their respective songs. Just as exciting as having such big names on the list of nominees for original song was the names who were on stage to announce the winner. Gene Kelly, Debbie Reynolds, and Donald O'Connor, the stars of Singing in the Rain, handled the duties of announcing the winners of both music awards and had the tough task of reading all 11 nominees for The Color Purple's original score. Luckily, John Barry was the winner for Out of Africa, saving the stagehands the trouble of trying to carry out 11 Oscars if The Color Purple won. John Barry probably didn't care much about the outcome of the original song race, since A View to a Kill was not a nominee. And it turned out that Marvin Hamlish's hunch was right. Lionel Richie won the Oscar for Say You, Say Me, making it five years in a row that the Oscar went to a song that hit number one on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. If you need any more proof that the movie song was turning in a new direction in the 1980s, this statistic should prove it. Outrageous was the word Lionel Richie used twice in his speech to describe the feeling of winning the Oscar. He didn't thank anyone associated with White Knights, just a bunch of people who believed in him throughout his music career. I also want to mention that Lionel Richie's win made it four years in a row in which a person of color won the original song Oscar. Native American Buffy St. Marie kicked it off in 1982 as one of the writers of Up Where We Belong, 
Then it was black songwriters for the next three years with Irene Cara, Stevie Wonder, and Lionel Richie. And remember, this all kicked off in 1972 when Isaac Hayes was on stage picking up his Oscar for Theme from Shaft, the first time a black person won an Oscar outside of the acting categories. So I'm not spoiling things when I say that this streak ends with Lionel Richie because the men and women nominated for the original song Oscar for 1986 will all be Caucasian. Oh well, it was a great step forward. But maybe the streak of number one Billboard songs winning the Oscar will continue. We'll explore that on the next episode of the Best Song Podcast. Of the nine people nominated for the Best Original Song Oscar of 1985, only Marvin Hamlish will be invited back as an Oscar nominee in the future. Almost all the others went back to their day jobs as pop music singer-songwriters. 18 months after attending his first and only Oscar ceremony, Ed Kleban died of complications from throat cancer. He was only 48 years old. After his death, the Kleban Prize in Musical Theater was created to award lyricists and librettists in musical theater. A couple of winners of the award since its debut in 1991 have gone on to create award-winning Broadway shows. One of them would become a two-time Oscar-winning songwriter. We'll find out who that is later on in this podcast. And that's going to do it for this episode. A special thanks to Peggy Rupert for sponsoring the episode of the Best Song Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions about anything you hear on the show, send me an email to jeffswim at aol.com. Thanks everybody for singing along with me, and I look forward to doing it again next time. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.